All right, Revelation chapter 4, and if you'll pick it up with me in verse number 1, says this, And after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the Lord, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord." to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Let's ask the Lord to help as we study tonight. Lord, we thank you so much for the time that we have to study the Bible tonight. Lord, the passage that we're looking at, you know, is descriptive of your throne. And Lord, here we are this, this evening in this humble place, and Lord, we, our minds, Lord, need to be, Lord, we need to be prepared to consider a place so different and so holy. Lord, we, we don't have the faculties, I, I don't believe, to properly understand just all the sights that John saw. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us this evening as we look at this passage for our hearts to be stirred. Lord, give us just a glimpse of your glory and your holiness I pray that you'd help us to just to, Lord, be in awe of you. So please bless this time as we study together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Revelation 4 is my favorite of all of the, I think, all of the chapters in the book of Revelation. If you remember, we studied, we began with the introduction in chapter 1. And in Revelation chapter 1, we really laid out the theme that well, there's lots of there's lots of points of interest in this book, right? There's many points of interest. People are interested in the Antichrist and the events and the judgments, or people are interested in, in all these details and they like to compare current events to it. Really, we can never forget that the theme, the great theme of the book of Revelation is, well, it's Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus. We're supposed to look at the book of, at the revelation that John was given, and we're supposed to be looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So chapter four 
really the theme here is John is transported into the very throne room of heaven. We understand tonight that, that that's a literal place. The throne of God, the throne of heaven, the place where the, the place that John was transported to here in Revelation chapter four. And so it's a heavenly scene. It's a beautiful scene. And what happens is he's transported to this throne room and he experiences the glory of God. Now, this I've said is part one because part two comes next time. And that's in chapter five. So part one, what we just read and what we'll look at in more detail, John is ushered into the very presence of God and the throne of God. Part two is in chapter five, and there's the dramatic entry of someone into this assembly. So we'll see both of those this week and next week. But let's begin, let's dive in and just look at this verse by verse tonight. So in verse number one, after this, after this, well, you tell me, see if we'll get a little bit of participation. What have we just studied after this? What, what's, the, what's the prior vision that John had just seen in the preceding passages? What, what, what had we looked at before? I know it's been a while, but some of you probably, you know, what was it that we were looking at? What were we studying before this? In a few weeks. Yeah, we studied all the churches. How many churches were there? Seven. So we studied these seven we study these seven churches, and I want you to look back quickly, something that you need to see. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse number 19, because we, we saw an outline for the book in chapter 1 and verse number 19. In verse 19, John says, in chapter 1, verse 19, that he gets the, he's given this message from the Lord, and the Lord says to John in verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So you see, you see the outline. It's a, the outline is given to us in the book of Revelation, right in verse number 19. John, you're going to write about the things that are past. You're going to write about the things that are present. And then you're going to write about the things that are to come. Well, in chapters 2 and 3, we've looked at the seven churches. And in the seven churches, those would be which of these things? Would, be, would those have been the things which, would those have been the things which thou hast, the things which are, the things which thou hast seen, or the things which should be hereafter? What would you say chapters 2 and 3 was? The things that, yeah, the, the present, the present age would be the seven churches described. And so we talked about how every church that exists today is going to find itself patterned with some of the similitudes of those churches, some of the similarities that we saw in those seven churches. But now we come to chapter number four, and we're no longer talking about the things which are. Now, if you'd say, well, Ethan, that's just your interpretation. Well, let's look exactly at what the text says. Look at verse number one. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee the things which must be when. Are you looking at it with me now? Yeah, the things which must be hereafter. So at this point, we are introduced to the future things. So in chapters two and th three, we saw the things that are. And now in chapter number three, or chapter number four, rather, we're being introduced to the things that are yet to be fulfilled. These are the things that are yet to happen. So we're looking at the future. We're looking at the beginning of the prophecy of a future age, of an age that is yet to come. 
the things which shall must be hereafter. There's a few interesting things that have you noticed in verse number one. Notice in verse number one also, after this I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet. You notice the trumpet there? Now, the significance of the trumpet, we cannot say with certainty because the scriptures don't give us a certain interpretation of what the trumpet is. But what does the trumpet remind us of? Yes. That the trumpet will sound at the return of Christ. The trumpet sounds at the return of Christ. And then notice the phrase here. The phrase is, I heard as it were of a trumpet talking with me. And what did the trumpet say? It said, come up hither, come up hither. And it says that, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And verse number two, and how quickly, and you got to help me out tonight. I know we worked hard today. Everybody's tired, but I mean, verse number two, it says, now he says, come up hither. And what's it say? It's immediately he's in the spirit. Immediately he's in the spirit. Now, I have a lot of, there's a whole study that you could do on the rapture of the church, the, the catching away of the church. But I do believe, and, and again, this is not, people could challenge me on this bit, bit of eschatology here. I don't believe that this is making a conclusive argument for the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. But I do believe, as, as I understand, as I study prophecy, I do believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And I think what you have here is a great picture of that. You have the church present in chapters 2 and 3. You have the sound of the trumpet and John being caught up in the spirit. And now he's looking at the things that are yet to come. And in the framework that we understand the study of the end times, we do believe that the church is caught up and then the rest of what happens in the book of Revelation is geared toward the world that remains and the, and the people of Israel. And that's a traditional um, um, dispensational view of, of the end times. In fact, look with me, look at the passages that we wrote there. Look back at Second Thess uh, First Thessalonians. Go back to First Thessalonians. And verse number four, or chapter number four, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It speaks of a day, it speaks of a future day when there will be saints, there will be believers who are alive that never die, but the Lord receives them into heaven, and the dead in Christ, they're raised. And so you see the trumpet mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4. But also look back with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Speaking of this very same event, Paul speaks of it twice. So back in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, look down at verse number 51. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. 
We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's, uh, I've seen the humorous people put that on their church nurseries. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Anyway, you'll get that one a little bit later if it didn't, if it didn't connect with you. Um, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. The idea here is death. It's, it's sleeping in death. You saw the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4. That talks about the ones who sleep in Jesus, the ones who've died. Their bodies have gone to sleep in Jesus. Their souls are in the presence of the Lord, but their bodies have gone to sleep in Jesus. It says this, uh, so they will be raised, their bodies will be raised, but we shall not all sleep, it says here in 1 Corinthians, but we shall all be changed. And that's speaking of the changing of this, this physical type of body that we have to the new glorified physical body in the new creation. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last, what? Trump. For the trumpet shall sound. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. There's a rapture coming. There's a, there's a resurrection coming. There's a day that, the, that you and I could live in that day where the trumpet sounds and we hear the voice, come up hither. And I think in Revelation chapter 4, here back in our text tonight, when this, when the sound of the trumpet sounds, it reminds me of those passages about the trumpet. And then the voice says, come up hither. And immediately the apostle John is in the spirit. His, for him, his body stays behind on the Isle of Patmos, but spiritually he's in the presence of the Lord. I think you have in verse number one and verse number two, a picture of the rapture of Christ. Now, I do have friends good Christian friends who would disagree on the timing of the rapture. They believe that the church may enter some of the tribulation period. And, and I get that. I understand. We may take a week to look at the timing of that, look at passages like Second Thessalonians and things like that. But that's not the point of Revelation chapter number four. The point of Revelation chapter four is what comes next. And that is for us to be brought into the presence of the Lord, to come before the glory of the throne. So now pick it up in verse number two. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. I don't know what it would have been. Can you imagine what it would have been like? that vision that John saw or the, the being in that presence. And we don't have any real picture of the scale. I've always imagined the, the scale of it, but the scriptures don't give us really any vision of the scale of this throne. I mean, I imagine that he walks in and the, and the, the room is just enormous. I don't know though. It may, it may not be. Yes. Was there a mention of the, the Lord having a train? His train fills the temple. That's in Isaiah chapter number six, actually. Yeah, it's describing the, the temple of temple of, of God. Um, there's a there is a um, the, the scene that we see. I just I imagine John as a bit of like a spectator, you know, 
He's just there. I mean, he's not really invited to participate in anything. He's, he's in the presence and all kinds of things are happening around him. And he starts to describe the things that he sees. Now, again, when you study the book of Revelation, you have to remember, obviously, the Holy Spirit is giving these words to John, but he's also using, the, the Holy Spirit is using John's experience. So John is using the words that he would naturally use as the Holy Spirit give, gives him uh, gives those words to him, but it's still John. And so he has limited vocabulary. You and I have, li- we have limited vocabulary to even understand the glory of the Lord. And so he says, first thing he describes is this throne. And you notice the beauty of the throne, right? This, it, when you look at it, it's like Jasper. It has these colorful, beautiful stones And then there's a rainbow round about the throne. I mean, this is the stuff of, this is the, this is the, these are the descriptions that we have in our fairy tales, aren't they? And I don't mean to make an equivalency. I'm not, that's not my point. But it is interesting that when we imagine, when we write, when a writer writes a beautiful story, they, they use this kind of descriptive language and these kinds of colors and this kind of beauty and rainbows. And I think as we're young, when we're young children and we look at pictures like that and we, we think of those types of fantasy lands and worlds, we are, we're drawn to that. We enjoy it. But as we get older, I think the ugliness and the, the, um, the grit of life starts to make us a little jaded and a little cynical sometimes. And so you look at a picture like that in a child's book of an imaginary land, let's say, and all of its beauty, and you just kind of like, just dismiss it, right? But think about this. Well, I guess there's a few things. Jesus said that, that uh, suffered little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And I think in some ways that childlike wonder and awe and beauty, we're going to experience that. John sees that. He sees a a beautiful place beyond description. And so could it be that the most most beautiful things that that we have imagined, they they are just a glimpse of what the glory of heaven is and the beauty of heaven. We know that all beauty, some of you in the room, we have several in the room that are artists in, in different capacities, and you know something about beauty, that all beauty comes from God. And so the first thing we notice about this scene in heaven is that there's just an impressive, unimaginable beauty about it. The stones, the rainbow around the throne. Well, we move on. And what does John see next? First, he's just amazed at the dazzling beauty. And then he sees these individuals he looks around, and the first thing he notices is there are 24 seats. He counts the chairs. Now, I don't know what, I, I don't know how he, if he just stopped and counted them. I don't think I would be counting a number if I were there, but somehow he figured it out probably pretty quickly. Oh, there's 24 of them. There's 24. What is the significance of 24? I don't know. And I don't think anybody actually knows. There have been, there is speculation about it. We know that uh, that the Lord seems to work in numbers of twelve. We have the twelve tribes of Israel. There's twelve disciples. There's now twenty-four elders, 
And so there's 24 seats. I skipped ahead. Not only are there 24 seats, but those 24 seats have 24 occupants. And the occupants of the seats are the elders. Four and 20 elders sitting. We see these elders. Now, any ideas on, well, typically, typically what comes to mind when you think of an elder? This description of these people as elders. What, what, what would, could this be speaking to? Just think of what you know about elders. I mean, obviously, the first thing that probably comes to mind that you, you don't even have to know the scriptures at all, the first thing that would come to mind with elders would be they're well, they're like old, potentially. They're old people, maybe. Elders. That, that could be. But were elders always necessarily elderly? No, often, often, but not always. So what else is that? So you talked about maturity. These are, so the Bible does, in the church, elders are leaders in the church. What, what else were elders thought of, as, as you think biblically or in, even in Eastern culture? Elders were what? As seen as what? In what ways? Wisdom. Patriarchs. Okay. What else? Well, you're getting way ahead of me now. I'm not even there yet. You know, you're just like jumping right to the end. I'll tell you what. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Um, so, okay. So where were we? Elders, right? So this maturity, this wisdom. What else were the elders? Think about Israel. Israel had elders. What did the, the elders of Israel do? Anybody remember? Any Old Testament scholars in here about the, uh, the elders of Israel? They were the rulers. They were like the judges. They would rule on the law. People would come. You would come to the elders. And if you had a problem or you needed wisdom or if you had uh, a legal dispute, every village had elders. Every, every, every group in the, every, in different societal groups would have elders. And when there were conflicts, disputes, and questions, people would come and the elders would rule. So I think what you're looking at, my best understanding of these 24 elders, is they have some kind of ruling authority. They have some kind of ruling authority with God in heaven. Now, does that present questions for anybody? It does for me. I, I'm, I'm a, questioning kind of people, person. So, kind of people, kind of person. I'm a questioning kind of person, so I won't tell you the first questions that come to me, but I'm thinking of people having ruling authority in heaven. What, what question might come to your mind? Anybody? Any inquisitive or... Okay, that's one. How did they get picked? I'd like to know that. What other questions might come to mind? Why would, yeah, why do we need, why do, why do we need elders there? Or why does, why, just why, are there why would there be? If God is on the throne, why would he need to have elders there? Right? That question, any other questions that would come to mind? Ms. Bell, I can't, I can't hear you. Who are they going to be ruled? Okay, so you all are inquisitive too, right? So how'd they get there? Who are they? Why? Why do we need them? Why would God need them? Who are they going to be ruling over? Does anybody have any answers to those questions? They could be examples of uh, what's going to happen when uh, people that are mentioned that there will be people that uh, end up in heaven that will be rulers. Yeah. And maybe this is an example of 
So that, I'm glad you brought that up because in God's economy, I shouldn't say God's economy because in the universe, that is God's economy. He controls it all, right? He is, he is in control. God has always desired to involve his creation in different ways, right? So some of us would think, well, well, why would we need, like Deborah's question, why, why would we need to have other rulers in heaven besides God? Why do we need other rulers besides God now? Huh? Well, because the sin nature part, is that one thing you're thinking of? Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a good point. But even then, does God need to use human rulers? No. Why are there angels? Why do angels have power and authority and abilities? Why are there, why are there even people? Does God need human beings? So often the question, because my first question is always like, I don't, you know, God is there. Why do we need anything else? It's because God has always, God's desire in creation. And remember, we are not the only created beings, are we? Other, other, the other created beings that we often would think of as angels, right? We are not the only ones. God has desired from the creation of the world to have a heavenly family, to have to have a people. We spoke a little bit about this on Sunday, that God has always desired to have a people, and God desires to do His work and His power through His creation. So today, He uses human rulers. He uses family structures. He uses governments. He has a, a host of heavenly creatures that are invisible to us that He uses. This is part of the wonder of the supernatural, that God involves His creation. Now, these four and twenty elders, they could, be, they could be men, they could be angels, but all we know is that they are part of God's, God's power structure in heaven. And they are going to play a part in chapter 5 as well, which we'll see next time that we gather. So these are the elders. Now, like you said, Frank, there's more to it. The elders have white raiment. They're clothed in white raiment. We're back in, at the end of verse number four. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, my understanding, and I'm, I'm, I always qualify with this. I'm not a Greek scholar. I, I read the scholars, and I took just enough in college to make me know I don't know what I'm talking about. But my understanding, my understanding is that there's, there's at least two words for crown in Greek. The one has to do, has the idea of the royal crown that what would be worn when you were in power and authority, you wore that crown. But this crown is, is the crown that was spoken of, the champion's crown, the crown that's given to the victor, the victor's crown, the overcomer's crown, the crown that would be awarded. Think of the Greek games, for instance, and often rather than holding a trophy, you would come victorious, you won the, the, the games, and a crown would be placed upon you. So here we have the, the white of their raiment and the golden crowns upon their head. What would these, what would these two items signify? The white, what would the white, the white robe signify? I think their purity, that they'd been judged and that they have now come out in purity. They're, they're, they're completely pure. As you and I will be, by the way, if we know Christ, the three, pro, the, the three parts of our salvation are justification, the moment we're saved, we're made righteous, 
And then sanctification, while we live, we're continually being made righteous in Christ. So at justification, we're declared righteous. and sanctification, we're made righteous and then in, or are being made righteous. And then in glorification, we are completely righteous. We're glorified before him. And so that describes these people, these elders, whoever they are, they represent the, uh, they, they're in their glorified state and, and now in perfection. And they have these, these crowns indicating that they've overcome for the Lord. Well, now we continue on. And in verse, so we've seen the, we've seen the elders. And now there are some cosmic circumstances, happenings around the throne. Get ready for this. If you thought, up until now, if you thought that heaven, if you thought that heaven was floating on clouds with soft harp music playing in the background and pleasant little angels dancing about, you are in for a rude awakening when you get to the next verses. Now, Please, please don't, uh, d don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, but what you're about to read in heaven, it really does not res resemble a quiet gathering. Uh, it doesn't really re resemble a quiet gathering in a cathedral. It kind of looks a little bit more like a rock concert. Please don't be offended by that. But it is intense. It is powerful. It is pounding. It is emotionally charged. It is energetic. Let's look at what we're about to read. It says here, and verse number five, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Lightning, so flash, bright, the, the bright flash. So you imagine you walk in and it's not, ah, you know, it's like boom and flash and bang and noise and, and voices. Now, I imagine the voices are voices of praise and voices of worship, but this is a wild scene that's going on. And so John's taking it all in and he's like, man, there was lightning and thunder. There were voices. And then there's these burning lamps, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We talked about the seven spirits of God way back at the beginning. So I'm going to pass over that at this point. So, so imagine this glorious throne. It's so beautiful. But then all of this cosmic action that's happening. I think it speaks, obviously, of God's power over creation, his might, the awe and wonder. We're reminded of the God who came down on Mount Sinai and there was thunderings and an earthquake. This is God in all of his awesomeness and all of his mighty glory. So we see him in beauty. Now we see him in might and in power. And it is intense. And before the throne, verse number six, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now the scene gets even wilder. There are these four beasts. Now, when we say the word beasts in our, our modern concept of that word beast, for maybe not for everybody, but for a lot of us, I think the first thing that we think of is something, well, I don't know, I grew up with Beauty and the Beast like a lot of you did, so I think of the word beast as, ugh, you know, like kind of creepy, the beasts. 
Really what this means is he's just describing them as creatures, or like I saw, Miss Bell, you said animals. They're like, he says, these are animals that I've never seen before. He doesn't have a name for them because these are, these are wonderful beasts or wonderful living creatures, glorious heavenly animals that he's, uh, creation that he's never seen before. And he doesn't know exactly how to describe them except they just had eyes. He, if John was here, he'd be like, what'd they look like? He's like, they had eyes. Well, how many? They were full of eyes. They're full of them. Well, where were the eyes? They were in the front and they were in the back. Could you be more descriptive? I've never seen anything like neither have I. If, well, one of them, the first one, he was like a lion. The second one was like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. We could speculate on, on the, the lion, the calf, the man, the flying eagle. Some people have speculated that this is, these are four representations of the nature of Jesus, that he's a powerful lion of Judah. He was the calf, the one who came as the sacrifice for our sins. He's the, um, the man. He's God in the flesh and human. He's the eagle, speaks of his, his, his righteous soaring as a son of God. I don't know if that's what they are for. I, I have, we will know someday. I think what we can say with certainty is that whatever the significance of their appearance, it's, a, it's, it's whether we understand it now, when we see it in the future, when we understand it in the future, it will cause us to reflect worship to the Lord. Because that is what these creatures were created for. They were created to worship. But not only do they look like this. Okay, so, I mean, they have eyes. They have, they have, they, the one looks like a, they, they look like these four different appearances. And then in verse number eight, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And did I mention they were full of eyes? He said, he said that twice. Did you notice that? And now we come down to verse number, in the middle of verse number eight. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. What a scene. What a scene around the throne. I mean, remember, put it all together. John walks in and he's, we've kind of gone through it slowly, but he's taking it in in a, in a second, in a split second. He's caught up, he's in the spirit and he looks. It's, it's so beautiful. Oh, it's so noisy. Oh, the lightning is flashing. What are these creatures? They're amazing. What are they saying? They're saying it again. They're saying it again. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And they're still saying it today and they just said it a minute ago and they've just started another round of the chorus and now they've started again. And not only were they saying it in AD, well, let's say around AD 90 or so when John wrote this, but they were saying the same thing back in 500 BC. Because if you go back to Isaiah chapter number six, if you look at Isaiah chapter six, we see another similar vision 
Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, are the seraphims the same as the four living creatures? I don't know. They also had six wings. That's one similarity. They also cry, holy, holy, holy. It's possible that there are both seraphim and these living creatures, each doing the same, because there are some... I just think if Isaiah saw the, the eyes, and if Isaiah, he probably would have written about that too, but I don't know. Or maybe John is seeing the same creatures, but he's seeing them in a different appearance. Maybe they're able to appear in a different form. Nonetheless, 500 years before the birth of Christ, they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And in AD 90 or so, they're crying, holy, holy, holy. And in 2021, they're crying, holy, holy, holy. Their full-time job, not their full-time job, their reason for existence is to cry, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Notice I said that, their reason for existence. Now, how many of us would be honest enough to admit or carnal enough to admit that that doesn't sound like, in our unspiritual mind, that doesn't necessarily sound like the most appealing reason to exist. How many of you would, you, you get what I'm saying with that? Maybe you don't agree with me. Maybe you've reached a higher spiritual plane than I have. But you know what I'm saying? I'm like, boy, this is what they exist for. I wouldn't apply for that job. You wouldn't apply for that job. So, okay, so you're being honest. Me and you, Frank, we, we're having a little honest moment here. Yeah. Sure. All right. All those are really good, really good points. Something I think that we can that we can take away from this is. Who knows? This is a problem. And I think this is a good practical lesson to come out of all of this heavenly talk tonight. Who knows what will bring the greatest happiness to creation, to, to creation? Who knows? Well, God, obviously. Why? Because he is the creator. He is the creator. And while he created for, while he created, yes, for his pleasure and for his glory, he also created us in such a way that when we fulfill the purpose for which we've been created, we experience the greatest state of joy and happiness we could ever experience. And so I'll, I'll guarantee you, I'll guarantee you that these four beasts, these creatures are experiencing the, of whatever emotion they're able to experience, of whatever self-awareness that they have, they to borrow a pop culture phrase, they are living their best life now. I mean, they're just, they are just at the pinnacle. It doesn't get any better for them. And you and I, as, we just have to trust God. 
that his way is best, that he knows best, that his, and that what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be and how we, we don't reflect his glory. We haven't been called to reflect his glory the same way these creatures have been, but we have been called to reflect his glory, haven't we? And the whole story of mankind, the whole story of men and women has been we can bring greater happiness to ourselves by doing things our way. When God said, when God says, no, the key to the greatest life you'll ever experience, both today, tomorrow, forever, is to live in what I've called you to be. That his path is good, his plan is good, and we glorify him in the place that we're called to live. And with the bodies and minds, the intellect, the emotion, the passion that we have been given. So, the task of our calling is not the same as these beasts, but the purpose of our calling is the same. And that is to speak to the glory and holiness and wonder of our God. And now, verse 10 the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne. Boy, they're not worried about their authority and their power and their importance. Don't we get caught up that way in, in, in this world? We're like, oh, well, I got a promotion. Oh, well, I'm the boss, or I'm in charge of this, or I'm the leader of this. They forget all about their position as, why did they get, you guys ask, why did they get to be the, the, the twenty? I don't know, but they weren't concerned with that at all in this moment. Because when the worship started, when, the, when this awesome worship service in heaven started going on, these guys just fall down on their faces. And the first thing that they do is they take their, they take their crowns. And what do they do with them? They cast them. Now, I was curious. I want to double check that word because I was reading a commentary that said they lay them down. They laid them down. And the NIV translates it, they laid them down. But I looked at every other translation, I looked at the word, there was no laying involved. The word is what? It's cast. They took those things and they threw them before the throne. They threw them. They cast them. Again, this is not a, this is not a, a stuffy, quiet the worship service, this is intense. I mean, lightning, thunder, beasts, noise. The four and twenty, they fall down, they take their, throne, their crowns and they throw them before the throne. Why do they do that? What did the crown symbolize? Remember, we said the crown isn't necessarily a symbol of authority, but it's a symbol of victory, of award, of recognition. You can study it out. The Bible does speak of some kind of system of reward in heaven talks about you and I as, as faithful believers. There's some kind of system of reward in heaven. Now, it's, it's, it, we, it's not a works-based kind of thing. It's all by His grace, but, but there is. I mean, you can look up these different crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament, and this talks about a crown of life, crown of righteousness, crown of rejoicing. There, there's different crowns that are mentioned. Talks in the book of 1 Corinthians, talk about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ and receiving rewards. Well, what will we do? You know, you receive a crown, and, and I don't know if it's going to work this way, but you receive a crown for faithfulness. Well, when standing before the glory of God, the only appropriate thing to do with that crown is what? 
Just give it back. Just give it back and say, I didn't do that. I didn't serve that way. I didn't love that way. Jesus, that was you loving through me. That was you, Holy Spirit, that was you. That was your fruit produced in me. I didn't do any of that. I, I just trusted you. Take it back. No, get this off of me. I'm going to throw it back. And what do they sing? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Because it's all about you. For thou hast created all things. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. Well, that's the worship service that takes place in the throne room. Next week we will see a grand introduction and a dramatic entrance of Jesus into that into that throne room. So I hope you come back and follow along as we pick it up. But tonight, as we come away from this, let's just remember, let's just have a greater appreciation, a greater wonder, the glory of our God and our calling to live for His glory, for His power. Amen? We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you in our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.